At that point where no one has any expectations about what you should do, that is the point where you should be planting your flag. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mess screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials needed to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guests this week are Melissa and JW from the Little Friends of Printmaking. We talk about getting professional gig poster commissions while still in graduate school, drawing on inspiration from our art world heroes, never running out of ideas, and feeling out of place. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to make friends with Melissa and JW. Hi, James. Hi, Melissa. How's it going? Hello. Hi. We're doing well. How are you? Really good. I'm really happy to be talking with you both. I have known and admired what comes out of your studio for quite some time. And I'm just really excited to get a chance to hear more of the backstory and get to know you both a little better and share the story with the people. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Mm. So before we get into all the questions, would you please let people know those general three foundational questions of the who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure. I am Melissa Buchanan. Oh, and I'm James Buchanan. And together we're the little friends of printmaking. And we are in Pasadena, California. And what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) What don't we do? Uh, We design and print our own work, largely silkscreen. And we've been doing this together for around 20 years Yeah, nearly 20 years. Yeah. Beautiful. And where did you both grow up and what are early art memories from that time for you? Oh, geez. So I, I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I guess I, I mean, at least for me, I always considered myself to have like a temperament that gear was geared towards printmaking. I am Mm. like a sort of like a anxious person (laughs) and a methodical person. Process oriented. Process oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, Precise maybe. Precise. Yeah. So it was, I started doing printmaking in high school and it just really clicked with me. I really enjoyed the fact that like there was something that I could do that wasn't necessary. Like, even if I didn't feel creative that day, I could still like prep paper or, you know, Mm. mix inks or something like that. And yeah, it just sort of like suited my way of thinking. Well, I'm, she's the city mouse and I'm the country mouse. (laughs) I grew up in rural Minnesota and my early art memories are mostly like going to Minneapolis, seeing things at the Walker. I have this like very core foundational memory of being a kid, like a little kid, and wanting to see a specific Ellsworth Kelly, and that they it wasn't up, but they took oh. us into the painting storage, and I saw it. Oh, that's cool. I know. Isn't that cute? 
Anyway. Oh my gosh. Was that just because you were just a, a cute little kid coming yeah, into the specific so. Ellsworth, like, Kelly? Ellsworth Kelly? Ellsworth yeah. Kelly. Like, <laughs> yeah, not a lot of like eight year olds are asking. I, I don't the... even think I was, I, I wouldn't have even been eight. It would, <laughs> I would have been really little. Then that would have been extremely adorable. Yes. <laughs> but my introduction to printmaking, if it wasn't like a potato print in, in elementary school, was I, I took the other side where to do any silkscreen. I had to do it uh, like in a graphics course, like over in the annex of the high school by like small motor repair. And I had to go and breathe in fumes. And uh, that was my introduction to it. I was maybe like 13 or 14 years old. Mm. And I loved it. But I think because I was in a building far away from the art stuff on our high school campus, I just didn't connect the dots that this is like something I could keep doing. Or maybe literally just it wasn't something you could keep doing the way you could with like you just take another art course next semester. Like you take graphics and now you know graphics and you're done and you've done litho and, and silkscreen and now you're done and you can just enter the workforce. Mm, the right page at 16. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably what they intended. I mean, so like I went to college not having done printmaking in years and really only having done it in this like very- Technical way. Yeah, like a tech sort of way. And I, yeah, so and we met in college. Yeah, we met in on the first day of 2D design. Yeah. And like I was, I came in as a sculptor. I mean, I, I followed Truman Lowe, whose work I really liked, to Wisconsin. And then, of course, he left and became like a famous oh, no. curator. But that's okay. Congratulations to Truman. He's terrific. But yeah, but when I found out, well, we met in 2D design, and it was kind of one of those things where the teacher, had us bring in drawings to see like what our skill level was. Mm -hmm. And it was very obvious that James and I were influenced by the same types of things, which of course I immediately was just like, no, <laughs> no, but, I, but I, I'm the only one who knows about these things, you know, these, these nationally public published or internationally yeah. published comics <laughs> and stuff. So I felt threatened at first, but then we immediately became like best friends, best friends and then like later collaborators but yeah, when I found out that he was in school for sculpture, I was like, are you kidding me? We're at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. What a waste. Why are you wasting your time mm. on anything? No offense to anybody, but I mean, come on. Like It truly was like the sculpture area was like a dusty hole with like a single. <laughs> and yeah, our tools were always a mess. And like, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. It, uh, then to go into like, say, Jack Damer's studio or I mean, any of the studios at, at Madison, I was just like they're immaculate. It's perfectly appointed. Everything's in its place. And I'm just like, and everyone's, it's just busy. It's mm -hmm. and like little bumblebees buzzing around. And I'm just like, Oh, I, yes, I may be in the wrong place. Yeah. But. I I understand that in the extent that my husband went to Alfred university, not for ceramics, oh. but for printmaking. So oh. people are like, Oh, Alfred, you must like, and he's like, no, it's printmaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, I obviously I was interested in printmaking in high school, but I went to Madison not really knowing the history of the school with printmaking. Mm. I went because it was the best state school that you could afford. That I could afford. The same with mm. me. It's no one. I mean, if you're a printmaking nerd, maybe it's different, but it's nobody's great ambition to end up at the University of Wisconsin. What? I, I know, I'm serious. I feel like if you can get into Wisconsin- I grew up in Wisconsin. What are you talking about? No, I'm serious. If you, if you can get into Wisconsin, you probably could also get into somewhere better, but you can afford Wisconsin. I, so that's why you're at Wisconsin. I am just at odds with this whole sentiment, but you, you know, Melissa totally. looks scandalized, I positively am, scandalized. I am scandalized. Why are you scandalized? You got into much better schools. I did, but I went to Madison. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's funny you should talk about that a little bit because so I was just in Miami for Art Week. And there I spent some time with Faisal Abdullah, mm. who now teaches at Madison. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he believes that the first academic screen printing class ever yes. was taught in Madison. Absolutely. And I don't know if that's, no, that's, that's part of your legend too. Yeah. 100% correct. I mean, like I said, I came into the college not knowing that much about the history and I immediately started working. I had a work study job as a preparator assistant 
at the, it was the Elvium Museum, but now it's the Chazen Museum. And, you know, they have a wonderful print, print collection. collection. It's astounding. It's and fantastic. throughout the years, I mean, well, pretty quickly, but like throughout the years, I was able to enjoy the print collection there. But like, I found out pretty quickly, like just what kind of history the, the university had. And it just, like I said, I had already been interested in studying printmaking. So it was just, it reassured me that I was in the right place. Mm. Mm. I mean, as far as our legend and like, I do feel like it is a part of our legend that the mission of the university or the printmaking department at the or program at the university seems to be, I mean, since 1920-ish, to take these forms, these printmaking forms, art forms, and like take them from the commercial to Mm. the artistic. And Mm -hmm. we... To the extent that it's a part of our legend, we are the people who are like, well, what if we erased that line or blurred it or ignored it? And what if instead of making purely artistic screen prints, we sort of acknowledged what silkscreen is for and why it was developed in the first place to make quick, cheap multiples, to to make advertising, to make, you know, I don't know, things that are sort of. I don't want to say mass market, like but that was, intended. That but, was a huge influence of ours. Right, you know? is actual material culture and mass market mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting because we went to school un- undergrad at Madison for a relatively long time. We were mm-hmm. both part-time. So at the end of it, they kind of didn't know what to do with us. And we were critiquing with the grads. And we would get, we, we were a little at odds just in our approach to printmaking with what other students and professors thought of as what we should be doing. Am I saying that? Am I saying that in the most delicate way? (laughs) By then we were making, we were being paid and hired to make concert posters, not just in Madison, but like, you know, across the country. Oh, and in in Europe too. So like Mm -hmm. we were proud of what we were doing. We were excited. We thought it was so interesting and everyone around us was just like, Philistines, you jerks, you're ruining everything. <laughs> you're degrading the medium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, we heard it all. Like, we heard Melissa's favorite is a poster is in critique, and someone's like, I can't look at the words. I won't see it. I cannot critique it. And I'm just like, the lettering is part of it. And yeah. the word event is part of it. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know. This that that period was very tough for us, but it does make you tough. Because it makes you figure out the why of everything you're mm-hmm. doing. I wouldn't take it back. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, we, it was probably pretty light compared to what other people go through. Oh, 100%. But, you know, people just... I mean, oh, my favorite story with regard to that is I got to a point of frustration and a critique where I was like, so you don't like these posters that are for events. You want things for their own sake. But if we made a set of silk screens that were the same size edition, the same 18 by 24 sort of poster size in your mind, the same aesthetic, the same number of colors, the same kind of a subject matter, would you critique it then? And would you like, or would you still refuse? And they said yes. And so we made a set of things like that and they were lying. And they, <laughs> and they still had problems with it afterwards. But even though they were being disingenuous, it sent us down a rabbit hole of being like, we can be flexible with this. The, we don't have to sit and wait for somebody to to offer us a job to design something. We can just express ourselves and like with this sim- similar poster aesthetic. Right. It doesn't have to be artist over here and graphic design is over here. Yeah. They can be in some sort of weird middle area, mm-hmm. and we can be in charge. Yeah, that's so interesting because I didn't know that you were bringing these posters into your academic practice and saying, this is the art. Because I've known artists who say, oh, I do this more conceptual work and then to pay the bills, I do this. And I love that idea of coming in with this idea of these are not distinct. I am putting my creative energy into this. I am bringing a voice to this. And that is my art. And being unapologetic about that because – I think that printmaking does have a complex relationship with industry and that some people are all here for leaning into it. And some people want it to be the dirty secret that's in the closet that (laughs) print is 
advertising and print is mass media and print is graphic design as well. Yeah. Yeah. We were either very strident or very naive or, but probably both. (laughs) Or both. Yeah. Absolutely both. I mean, and it was, I was aware of the fact that like we're bringing these posters for events like that we got hired to do into critique say I had a class where we had to do four prints that semester. Mm -hmm. Well, I would make sure that I was doing eight or more just so that it wouldn't be a thing where it's like, well, I don't want to grade you on these posters. You know, it'd be like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm also making prints, (laughs) but these posters question mark also. (laughs) Well, I mean, we were, we were a little factory. People got very sick of us because we were making at least a poster a week. Yeah. So, I mean, we were, I don't know, little workhorses back then. Mm -hmm. I guess we still are. Yeah, I would think too that bringing the posters into critique, you would want to be getting better at those posters. You'd be wanting to be critiqued on them because Mm -hmm. this was something that was turning into a career. And there's no reason why that should be off limits as a place for peer feedback because there is also a hierarchy within poster design as well. And you're there in school to learn what your future trade is going to be. So it all, yeah. it all makes sense to me. I, yeah, I completely agree. But, you know, again, like, as James was saying, I wouldn't change it in that it kind of had us look for other avenues of feedback and critique. Right. And, mm-hmm. and which was positive, I think, because like a lot of people, once they graduate, they don't have that hot and cold running tap of critique anymore. And like the why and kind right. of uh, disappears, is, from, their disappears work. from their work totally so for us it was really important to start getting our work out in front of people and getting feedback on it be it there was a website at the time called gigposters.com that we would sure we were pretty active on that we got a lot of critique from and then just the very fact that like our posters were going up publicly on kiosks and we could see people in the community respond to them. I mean, I remember once we went to go, it was time for apartment hunting and we walked into somebody's <laughs> somebody's apartment in Madison and it was just an entire wall of like our posters that they had like ripped down from kiosks. You and, can see the tape still on. Yeah. And they were like ripped to a corner. <laughs> and I was just like, no, I can't do this. I got to go. <laughs> to me, it was like, a, I, look, I guess looking back, it was a wonderful coincidence that we were like getting so much pushback in class but in the public, it was very different. Like we were putting mm-hmm. these things out on light poles and on kiosks in the university and the people were going crazy. And I'm like, we must be doing something right. But everyone is saying we're doing something wrong. So who am I going to listen to? Like what? what's next? Mm-hmm. And that was like sort of like a, a crucial di- yeah. diversion point. Definitely. Yeah. I mean – Yeah, I don't have anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we leave the Madison years Mm. and in in your narrative, I would love for you to tell the story of how Little Friends of Printmaking came to be. (laughs) (laughs) So our our best friend that continues to be our best friend to this day came over very excited to our apartment one day and said, I, let's go to Ikea. And I was just like, well, how do we do that? And he said, well, now we can rent fleet vehicles. And I was just like, wait, what? back up. What are, what's going on? And he had signed, the university had a program, I guess, or... Hold on. Yeah. Let's back up. Let's back up. I don't, how do you <laughs> take another run at this. Let's take another run at okay. it. Okay. <laughs> we had a friend who was involved deeply in student government. Yes. And one of the things that he figured out was that any any organization that was registered with the university, whether they were the juggling club or the Black Student Union or the Young Republicans or whomever, like you could rent fleet vehicles, so cars, trucks, buses, at little to no cost. So his grand plan was to go to IKEA by setting up a fake organization. <laughs> he tried this himself. He set up something called the Sparkle Time Dance Team. But the problem at the time was you had to list your phone number. And so people kept called him and were like, how do I audition for the Sparkle Time Dance Team? And he got caught and that was the end of that. And then he, he came over and he was telling us about his, art, his troubles with this. And he was like, oh, well, do they have an art club at the university? And we were like, no, they don't. Well, I mean, I'm sure they must have had something, but... I... 
it was not made clear to me. Anyway, he comes over the next day and he's like, congratulations, you're the vice president and the president <laughs> of the UW Art Club. I mean, the UW Art Club. It was a nightmare because it was our number. It, our home phone our number. Our home phone number. Then so people were calling us and asking how they could register to be part of the UW Art Club. And or, or could we like look at their watercolors or can we look at their oh, portfolio? Oh, <laughs> I mean, not art students, just students generally. And then so, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even want to go to Ikea that bad. <laughs> so, anyway, we, we had to think of like what would be the name that we could change it to where we would never get a telephone call again. And, you know, we came up with the little friends of printmaking because it the little friends of sort of like a bloody sisters of the Yeah, the, the little sisters of the bleeding immaculate. Whatever. Yes, that uh-huh. kind of thing. So it seemed to sound pitiful and maybe a little religious. Okay. And then, and then like printmaking, because like even at the UW painters were the rock stars like this ceramics people were cool. This might have been internalized. Of uh, course it's internalized. <laughs> like, printmakers at the time were wearing lavender jeans and like polar fleece half zips. You, know, you and, say like, this like it's a bad thing. Well, now it's in style. But back then it was like, oh my God, who are these people I'm with? Yeah, now yes, they dressed like the girl from season two of, of White Lotus. But oh, like yeah. back then it wasn't cool. Sure. Okay. Like back then it was really sad. Sure, sure, sure. So... Yes, yeah, so we changed the name immediately. No phone calls. It was Everyone, so I, sad. It might still be registered as a as no, like a I university organization. I sincerely doubt that. But like that's the thing is we never got another call. It was <laughs> it was just over from that point. Uh-huh. And then you know, like it sort of evolved where it was just like for a little bit it was like a, a like a real organization. A real organization. We, we were like here we are we're the president and vice president of an, a university organization. Let's do something with it. There was a point where undergrads were banned from showing in university galleries because somebody had made like a big mess and glued things to the floor. Mm. And so we were like, Oh, but organizations can, can hold an exhibition. So we held an exhibition. We held a, a, like a two print annuals, like Mm -hmm. as the little friends of printmaking. And then we were like, Oh, we're a group. We're a team. Aren't we great? Like there's like 10 of us and we're the little friends of printmaking. And then as with all like collectives, everyone just sort of went away or started their own Mm -hmm. collective. Mm -hmm. Graduated, whatever. And then it was just the two of us and we were just like starting to, I guess, a professional career. And we were like, well, what do you, what do they call you? And and it seemed crazy to go by our names, you know, like one of the things that I always liked about the idea of being an artist, which, you know, didn't actually was not actually true is as a kid I was like oh being an artist is great because you can like the art is at the forefront and nobody pays attention to like the artist the artist I can be like mm-hmm. this like neurotic mess behind the art but nobody absolutely knows absolutely anonymous nobody knows that I'm anonymous uh-huh. you know? so I liked the idea that like we would work behind a name because it made us first of all sound like there's more of us like maybe we can be hired for even more jobs <laughs> instead of just like oh there's only the two of them and we won't stress them out yeah exactly but uh, little did I know that people actually do want to know the art artist behind the art. <laughs> I know. I was I was going to say having worked in the commercial gallery world for about a decade that's almost nothing could be further from the truth yeah, I know, when it comes I know. to <laughs> It was it was a, it was a wake up call definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I I could I could see it if you hadn't been in it thinking that it makes a lot of sense because the objects are so revered and the objects are so mm put on center stage and they're on the white walls and they have the writing about them and that kind of thing. And then you get in a gallery and they're like, so there's going to be a VIP dinner on Thursday mm-hmm. night at the pre pre collectors <laughs> opening and make sure you don't get too drunk. And you know, yeah, like, yeah exactly. <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of kind of becoming little friends of printmaking as it stands now, as the two of you out in the world doing projects, and how you both came to it as, as separate artists. Mm. How did the kind of collaboration and formation of a unified aesthetic come to be? What was that process like as individuals to become little friends of printmaking, the brand or the look mm. or the aesthetic or however right. you want to say it? It's I don't think it's replicable. I think we're freaks. <laughs> I've tried working with others. It doesn't really work that well. I mean, we just, 
we had an ease with each other right away. I think we just had a shared sensibility, mm-hmm. not just visually like that first day, like in 2D design, but like, I think there was a desire to like, m- not compete with the other one, but make them laugh or like, be like, what about this? What about that? And I think that's more constructive than the usual collaboration thing of, of, of being competitive. We had a very tough go of it, maybe like three or four years into us collaborating when we were still in school, because there was this pressure, whether it was internal or external, for us to each put in 50% on each piece. Well, I think mm. when you're in school, you don't want anybody to think like, if, you know, one person is doing all the work. Right. Right. And and there is that like inclination amongst students to be like a gossip or a snitch and be like, oh, yeah. I know the truth. James does everything. <laughs> I saw it with my own two eyes. No, Melissa does everything. Yeah. I saw it. I heard it. Yeah. But anyway, like we got into a position where we were almost enforcing like a 50-50 collaboration on every single thing. And then we were competing with each other over like space in an individual design or an individual print. Mm. And it was like very unpleasant. And we just had to sort of like let go of that and just get back to what was appealing about working together in the first place, which is just like prints have all of these different components. Mm-hmm. Especially our prints. Especially our yeah. prints. Like, it does not begin and end with the design. Like then there's the materials and and the inks and the colors and the and the application, like the technical application of the print. Like there are so many aspects of this, and there are so many points at which you go back. You can go back and like be like, oh, maybe we should change that. Like it really is a dialogue mm-hmm. between two people, whether we in, intend for it to be fifty fifty or not. Mm-hmm. Like so, we just had to get into a much more comfortable rhythm of like. Uh, starting projects together and finishing projects together. That was kind of the rule. Mm -hmm. Like we wanted to be on the same page more or less in terms of concept. And we wanted to be on the same page more or less, but I mean more, hopefully, in terms (laughs) of the final product and like whether it's ready to go. And that's kind of like the thing that has made it work. And like over the years, we've just sort of developed a house style where like at this point, like I, when I'm, designing something I'm confident that I'm doing it in a little friend style and Mm -hmm. I feel it's probably the same for you yeah I mean definitely like when you look at some of the early pieces that we did together like collaborative pieces we definitely had like a lot of like vignettes happening within like the 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 composition where it could be like oh I'm over here and like James is over (laughs) here and they kind of go together you know what I mean Mm. and I remember even in college we were I was handing something in and you know the professor wanted to know like is this both of you or is it one of john hitchcock yeah it was john hitchcock and uh, john was like i can't tell whose this is anymore and i don't know if that was like bad for in terms i'm sure it made his job harder um for for us that felt like a win you know that like it couldn't you couldn't because we that particular print i remember like we had drawn separate pieces of it so it felt like a win that like, it looked like it was from one hand. Right. Yep. Yeah. And then in terms of your individual self-perception as artists, was that at all challenging or did it just feel like such a natural process that well, you know, it yeah. never kind of came up against ego? It's interesting because like I, it is such like a, what we do is such a solitary pursuit Mm. that you would think that it would be an issue, but I've not, I really like that there's somebody to bounce ideas off of. It's great. Um, I, there's not anything that we're doing with our work that I don't feel like I'm putting my all into, or like there's, there's no part of me that doesn't feel like I'm being heard. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I don't really have something where I'm just like, well, I really wish I had an avenue to funnel this. I think that we could just do it. Yeah. That's the thing is we can do it. And this it, is a, like an umbrella that can hold or that can cover all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like I interrupted. No, you did great. Oh, okay. Good job. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it seems like there's almost an element of sort of 
destiny and it coming together. The fact that you two met, that you already had these influences coming together, that you were able to work together and be partners in multiple senses of the word. It's kind of, I think it's pretty unusual, honestly, yeah. in, in the world. And so it, happened I think as it was supposed to happen is what it sounds like and when we were in college like we definitely we looked up to Warrington Colescott and Fran Myers Warrington obviously had been retired by that point Fran was our professor and you know we got to spend a lot of time with them Mm -hmm. and their working style together is very different from ours but just the ease that they had with each other oh my god they were like I mean that is I started to be cringe, but a couple goals, right? Like, <laughs> like they were so great together yeah. and like so obviously in love all the time. It was yeah. it was a dream. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so sweet to hear. It was yeah. so sweet to hear. Yeah, I mean, Fran was wonderful to us. I remember when we were really young, like just out of college, we were put in a book called New Masters of Poster Design. And she was one of the first ones to say how proud she was I know. of us. I mean, it, it felt- I, I'm such a dork because like I, we were in the building for some reason. We, I think we came to show the book to John, but he wasn't around and Fran's like, what do you have? And we showed her and she was, she got all choked up and she was like, you're going to be more famous than your teachers. Which is not, which is not true. It's not, it's not a never. Goal. That's the thing is like, I'm not a competitive person. Like that is not a goal. I, I thought that at the time I was like, you're insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a book friend. <laughs> That's that's so beautiful to hear, though. Yeah. So in terms of the style that you have now and the influences that you have, I, I feel like it is, as we've spoken to, it's really distinctive. And I see these little seeds of other artists along the way. You know, I, I, I was looking at them like some of them I'm like, ooh, it's like really giving Richard scary this one or something like that. Or one will be like the one you've released was sort of like the Snoopy type figure in it. (laughs) But it it remains really distinctively little friends of printmaking. And when I talk to particularly artists who are looking to find their way in the world, they can get really caught up in the, am I nodding too much to this person? Is it not enough? If someone can see my influence, am I not being creative enough? Am I not being myself enough? What does that feel like for you all that you're within this aesthetic tradition yet still very distinctly yourselves? And was that ever a worry for you early on that people may be able to see your influence? No. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, like I... All I remember, I mean, Richard Scarry is a huge one for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Me personally, like, I, like, looked through those books. I can't even tell you how many times as a kid. I mean, even, like, I still have them from when I was a kid. And all I wanted to do was that, (laughs) essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, I wanted to create worlds like that. And I wanted to have something that would be impactful on somebody like me at a young age. You know what I mean? Like that was my goal as a kid. So I don't really mind if people see like the The bones, the bones of what we do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not even bones. I mean, like, honestly, like with, with some things that are, I'm impressed when someone points at something that is not obviously inspired by Richard Scarry. And they're like, that's like Richard Scarry. I'm like, Oh, uh uh-huh. And then other times people look at something where it's like, it's, It's so obvious, like, we're, this is literally, we're reinterpreting one of his books. Mm. I'm like, yes, yes, congratulations, yes, this is Richard (laughs) Scarry. I mean, we try to be reasonably obvious with our influences because, I don't know, I just don't see anything, I don't see an advantage in holding back. (laughs) The only disadvantage would, would be if someone told you you couldn't make it. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, cease and desist, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, other than that, I, I feel like if we can make a print that expresses how we feel about a specific piece of art or an artist, and it points people towards that artist, mm-hmm. then it's like two good things. It's like we've reinterpreted what we enjoy and sort of like metabolized that and sort of expressed it. 
And now it's sending you away towards this other stuff that we are, if you like this, oh, wait, you're going to love yeah, what absolutely. you find. Yeah. I mean, recently, actually, just a couple weekends ago, we were showing our work at Art Fair and somebody was looking at it and they were just like having a very nostalgic, emotional response to it. Mm. So much so that they got choked up and they were like, ex- they excused themselves from the booth for a little bit to, so you know, weird. <laughs> I mean, it was extremely touching. And I mean, that's the thing is, it's just like, we are expressing mm. our sense of love and nostalgia for these things that we either grew up with or admired and it really touches me when somebody it it brings something out in somebody else and they feel an emotional connection to it it is it's a very strange thing though because i feel like half of the nostalgia people can't put their finger on it because they'll be looking Mm. at a design of ours that doesn't resemble something from the 20th century that they could put their finger on but they just feel a sense of nostalgia and i think it's for the process. I think mm-hmm. people remember seeing spot colors. Oh, people remember uh-huh. seeing things that were plate litho or silk screen. And that was a part of their day-to-day life, like in the store or on a shelf. And like now it's gone and everything else has this cheap crumminess or like this glossy sheen. And there's kind of no this doesn't exist except like within silk screen and litho and things like that. Yeah. I think that's such a important point because part of the feeling that your work gives does come from the specific qualities of the process yes. because that was what was being used. And while some of, as we spoke to some of the images have a really strong direct link to Richard Scarry, where you maybe have this little urban scene with these little animals doing sure. their little jobs, but then you've got other works I was thinking like the year of the horse or the black cat that just feel like my childhood. Right. <laughs> and I could not tell you why, you know, I could yeah. not. And I can tell I you why. I mean, <laughs> <you had> to- <laughs> like people are like, Oh, do you like this book? And I'm like, I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it happens to us a lot where we're always worried that we're skewing too close to something. So we frantically try and find like the piece of ephemera that we feel like we're right. curbing from or whatever. And it's, it couldn't be further away from it. It's just like the idea, it's the, feeling. it's the feeling that that piece evokes in us through our lens onto a piece of paper. Right. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Yeah. It, and then, yeah. And then like the, the actual as we said, the the quality of the image, the way the colors layer, that's all in there too. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're, I have this weird experience where we had a a show at Mount St. Mary's university university where they were showing a bunch of our work over the past, from over the past 10 years. And we toured the gallery with some students and one of them, I mean, God bless her heart. She said, couldn't these all be digital? Oh. And then, like, reflexively, Melissa and I go in and we're pointing and we're like, well, that couldn't, that one couldn't be digital because we're doing matte black ink on, on black paper. You know, you couldn't do that digitally. Or this one has, like, a lot of, I mean, metallic inks or Yeah, varnishes. it's metallic over black. And then, like, mm-hmm. or this one's fluorescent. It's fluorescent and it's a split fountain and it goes into this. And But, like, ultimately, like, it was this thing of, like, oh, yeah, every time we go out here – whether it's at the front of our mind or not, like every time we go out there, we're trying to make sure that there's a reason that it's a print or we're using silkscreen to the utmost. I mean that, and whether it's like limited colors or, or a ton of colors or monoprint or, or split fountain or, or any of these sort of things like, or fluorescent powders and and things like that. Yeah. I'd love to ask you about, one of your compositions in particular, which is the I'm dumb duck. <laughs> sure. Which, and I don't really have a fully formed question other than I love it. And I don't know why. <laughs> Can you explain to me why I love this so much? <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, truly that's the funny thing is again, it just goes back to James and I, when we're coming up with an idea for a new product or print or whatever, we're just sketching together and whatever makes us laugh the most right. wins. Mm-hmm. And that really made us laugh. And again, like, we don't know why. <laughs> I've had to think about it a lot, actually. I've had to think about it a lot because a lot of people, people have had yeah, the same they, reaction that you are where they just 
see it and they start laughing and they're just like, I have to have everything you have with him, you know, the pin, I need the socks, I need the sweatshirt, I need, I, please make a print of him, but they don't know why they love right. him so much. Uh, so he first started out, we were doing a silk scarf, we were doing a uh, like a pop-up residency in Tokyo, and so we made like silk scarves to be sold at a department store. And the silk scarf was like, people we know in Tokyo, sort of fashion illustration style on little cats, like little cat characters, mm-hmm. like so... Hello, Richard Scary. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then like, so we're drawing it and then like, there's a little dead space in it. And so I draw a duck because that's how I feel when I'm like in Japan and I'm like one American guy just doop-de-doo, like sticking out <laughs> like a complete sore thumb. Well, to be fair, do we feel that much different here? No, not, not at all. <laughs> so like, that's the beginning of him. And then like, we just started playing around with maybe he's a dumb guy. And then the, the sweatshirt is is like it's a takeoff on like sixties peanut sweatshirts, like with the big mm. fat slab typeface at the bottom, which that I would could usually say peanuts or something. Right, or, or something, something like, like that. that. I couldn't find what they actually used, so I just had to draw it. Mm. Uh, and then like we liked that it had the the copyright information at the bottom because I feel like that's such a like a sixties, seventies, eighties thing. Yeah. Like nowadays they wouldn't do it because it would ruin the shirt. But like, it's like a signifier of something that's actually old Mm. that has that big fat copyright information at the bottom. And it's only one color. And it's on this big oversized sweatshirt. And so it's just, it's like a a total package where it's like, just one thing on its own is like pretty good. But like you put it all together and it's like, it evokes this response. But I also think like just the character itself, like it kind of plays into our constant feeling of being dumb well (laughs) but like just my own mental whatever is just like i constantly feel like oh the joke's on me or like i'm just not getting something that everybody else is getting but i'm not that utterly bothered by it like Mm -hmm. i'm i'm just doing my own thing and like i don't totally understand what's going on around me but that's okay (laughs) <laughs> I, I agree and disagree. I totally identify with the first first part of what you said, but I wish I aspire to be like the duck, to throw the nails in the air and not care and swing the <laughs> hammer around wildly and not care about how stupid I am, mm. as opposed to looking around at everything that's going on and being like, I don't get it. Is there something that I don't understand? Yeah. I re- I've read all the materials. Like, why is everything <laughs> wrong? Like, <laughs> I've Googled how to be normal so many times. Exactly. <laughs> like, so it's one of those where it's our current moment culturally where I just feel super dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that any of that is exacerbated by Southern California living where I don't know. I just, when I go there, I feel like everyone is like really hot and really rich and like Where really cool. Out? Where are you hanging out? <laughs> uh, Venice Beach. That's oh, where I've seen exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I mean, the, this, the, one of the things that we love so much, I mean, there's so many things we love so much about Los Angeles, but one of the things is that it really contains multitudes. Mm. So we feel totally the, accepted. We feel the most comfortable in the city that we've ever have in any city but i i don't i couldn't necessarily say that if i went to like venice beach or they might kick us out yeah exactly (laughs) but you know like the city has room for every type of person so that's nice but i think ultimately it's just the way that i approach every i mean like people comment a lot on like patch and pin and shirt that we made that says depressed in los angeles (laughs) and you know they they are just like, how could you be depressed in Los Angeles? And I'm like, well, that's kind that's of the joke. That's the joke of it. Yeah. But yeah. it's also like the the other joke of it is I take this with me wherever I go. You know what I Only mean? Only here is it an outrage. Only that, here. That the sun is shining. Yeah. The surf is high. I can't uh-huh. get out of it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm miserable. But like, again, it's just like, yeah, when I... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like super... Well, I understand what you're saying where sometimes you around rich people Mm. and you just like feel absolutely insane because like (laughs) the world is so different from yours but i will say the one thing if you live here and you're avoid things like venice beach maybe i love the fact that rich people in los angeles 
a certain kind of rich person in Los Angeles dresses like a bum. Yeah. And like drives a crappy car. I love that because it means that maybe I'm a rich person. <laughs> and maybe you have with respect. Oh no. I know. But I, I'm not, but like but it like it, it gives me a license to dress however I want and do whatever I want because they're I mean, once you meet a few rich people who are doing that, then you're like, oh well shoot, I'm what's holding me back? Like I'm just gonna mm-hmm. do whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah. You're dressed like a total weirdo. <laughs> I, I think I saw that a little bit in Seattle too, you know, having Paul Allen come through the fair in jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think a, a West coast wealthy. Right. Yeah. It's so funny. I'd love if in the time we have left, you could speak to advice for students. And I'm sure this is something that you get a lot as mm-hmm. people who are kind of living the dream, making the career off your art, living in a place you love, working with your partner every day. But I do know that there are a ton of students who listen to the podcast and we've talked a bit about your experience in college and that sort of thing, but anything particularly that you have found is useful or that you would love to go back and tell little Melissa and little James before you took on this life. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. I think one of the things looking backwards that would be interesting for somebody else to know is as much as you're influenced by something specific, don't just emulate that. Mm. It's not that art is a zero sum game, but like if say you're influenced by a specific artist and then you completely emulate them and you're completely successful, you're taking that person's market, the market for that kind of thing. And you're cutting it exactly in half. Yeah. You're doing a disservice to something you love. And to mm. yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the thing that we ended up doing, which we fell into making concert posters. I think we both intended to be indie comics artists. Mm-hmm. But mm. th- the thing about it is by the time that we decided to become indie comics artists, the door was already closing or closed. Or at least we felt like that. And so like we found something else and it, we, it turned out to be perfect for us. So mm. I think just trying to like follow too closely on something or hop somebody else's train can be like a little bit of a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, because obviously you're, you love this artist, you're emulating this artist, you have enthusiasm for the artist. That's great. But personal, like things that come personally, like read so much more clearly than an emulation of something. Like if you have like a actual, like personal response to something and you can put that in your art versus just like, I think that this is what this person would do had they had to make a piece for 2d design or something, you know what I mean? Like it it just makes more sense to like have something come directly from you and like, and the things you love. Yeah, exactly. And like, just sort of like have that stuff flow through you. Mm. Uh, I think another thing when we graduated, we were very frustrated. uh, And like, it felt like we had 28 hours in the day to just do absolutely nothing. Like nobody Mm. was calling upon us to do anything yet. Or anyway, it felt that way. It wasn't true, but it felt that way. Mm. It felt like we were spinning our wheels and it was driving us insane. But like looking back even a year after that, I was like, that was a really crucial period and something that you can really make the most of by just taking that period where nobody is asking you for anything yet and deciding what what you want your practice to be like. And at that point where no one has any expectations about what you should do, that is the point where you should be planting your flag and saying, this is what I do. This is what I'm really good at. Here it is. And like document it and get it out there. And it, and it's not spinning your wheels, even though you're not getting the, like the, the response yet. Yeah. You're honing your craft. Because like once you're out there in the marketplace, it's very hard to take a left turn. You know, it would be very hard for us at this point, after 20 years of of designing posters, to be like, actually, now we make small ceramic pots or something. Yeah. I mean, maybe we we could, but I I don't know. Like, it would be be very difficult. Mm. Like, people, or anyway, even if we did that, people would still be coming to us and be like, well, what about one more poster for old time's sake? So you just, before anybody knows what to ask you for, that's your time to figure things out and decide what it is and then present yourself to the world. 
Yeah. I mean, this is something that I was reflecting on earlier, and I don't know if this runs counter to what you were just saying, but... Feel free. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about, like, when we were in school, we, obviously, James touched on that we were very, very amped all the time. Like, I don't even know what the word is for. We were just like, go, go, go. You know what I mean? Like, our professor, John Hitchcock, recently told me that he was scared of you was scared of me in college because <laughs> I was just so intense. You know what I mean? Cause I was like, I'm here. I'm for- paying for every minute. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know, time he softens all edges and you know, I'm not as intense as I used to be, I hope, but I don't think I allowed myself to celebrate the things that I was doing enough You know, I think, and I'm sure it was just a combination of youth and my own mental whatever and my extreme Midwesternism that didn't allow me. For example, when we got into that book, New Masters of Poster Design, I was just like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay. Next book. Next book. What's going on? (laughs) And it's just like, why didn't I at the time, and again, it's hard to tell yourself when you're young to do this, but like, really celebrate the fact that like, that's an accomplishment, you know, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be just like, oh, I got into a book. It doesn't have to be like that. It can be, I finished this suite of prints, like that's an accomplishment, you know, and sort of like, let yourself sit with that for a little bit, because it's a big deal, you know, and you celebrate yourself (laughs) a little bit more. I'm, it's something that I'm still trying to learn. Well, I mean, I think something that you're that dovetails with that is maybe just create a context for your work, Mm. where you're like, this is a, this is, these aren't just unconnected prints. This is a suite of prints and now it's finished and I'm publishing it and I'm, maybe I'm showing it somewhere and like, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Like, I think you have to document everything and create a context mm. around yourself mm. so that people can understand what you're doing. That's something that like, they don't teach you in school as a thing that probably made you crazy in school. is just the way that it's always, we're moving on to the next print over and over again. Yep. Yeah. Like it's very hard to build up a body of work that doesn't look like the next guy's body of work. Cause you're all moving on to the next, we're doing aqua tint and then we're doing this other thing. And now we're doing dry point and now we're doing this yep. and like everybody leaves with the exact same portfolio. It's important just to create a context around what you're doing. I mean, it's awful to say that it has to be digestible into like a, an elevator pitch, but like that is the reality of human interaction and human understanding is like, we have to create these contexts. Yeah. I mean, I think pretty much everybody has like a context, you know? Well, sure. <laughs> but like, how do you express it to someone? Yeah, that's true. How do you mm-hmm. turn it? In, I hate to say this. How do you turn it into a product? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, because if if you're interacting with the art world in the context of object creation and subsequent collection, there is some of that in there. And there always is going to be, particularly if you don't want to go the traditional route of having exclusive representation with a gallerist. And, you know, I mean, that way, if you want to be yourself and just you making what you want to make there it is important that people can understand it quickly and that's just a reality i think yes no it's very true i guess that's the thing is like if you're able to break into that like the very top echelon of the art world then they're creating the context for you this mm-hmm. print was produced here or by this artist and it was printed here and then it's, he's represented by this gallery and then it goes into this museum and like there's all this provenance and context. And then like with something like Melissa and I, there's none of that. Mm-hmm. So like we have to create all of the context. We have, I mean, our job is so crazy because like I have to be a designer, a screen printer. I have to be a copywriter. I have mm-hmm. to be a photographer and a, a, a director of like Instagram videos and a director of commercials for like brands that we have to work with. Like I that have we to, get to work that with. we get to work. <laughs> <laughs> we have the pleasure of working with. But it's so stressful though. Yeah, like no, I mean, because it's not what we we didn't set out to like have to do all this stuff. But like you find your way and you find like where your aptitudes are, mm-hmm. and that's how you can start a sort of building. Yeah, I mean, when we things were, underneath yourself. When we were in college, we sort of chafed at the idea of like curating your audience, right? Yeah. 
And what I mean by that is curating your audience based on like their economic background. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Basically price. It comes down to price. Like we, I really didn't like the idea of could only own a piece of my work if they had a certain amount of dollars. So that's one of the reasons why we started doing what we do Mm -hmm. is wanted to figure out a way, like how can we make the economics of it work so that like anybody off the street could like own a piece of ours. Right. I think we had a, a very crucial, I mean, we were talking before about like how in, in our interaction with critique and like making concert posters, but concert posters were also a really interesting thing in terms of the economics of print, where we had previously had an art show that we thought was very successful, where we sold like a few prints from a small edition for like, I don't know, like $200 a piece. And then we went and made a concert poster and sold a hundred copies at $20 a piece. And suddenly you're thinking I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> and then, and then you're like, well, can I take the economics from this concert poster thing and move it to the art thing? And then just like have the freedom to make literally whatever we feel like. And honestly not worry that much about if the entire edition sells out because like just the economics of everything is so favorable to us. Mm you know, and to the consumer where like, or the customer, I should say, like just $20, like you can, you can like buy something for $20 and understand what's special about it later. Like Mm -hmm. you can just decide to get it because you like the picture and then later find out that it's a screen print and it's hand pulled. And isn't it nice when this happens? And isn't it nice when the light shines on it in this way? Like it was an absolutely transformational experience to just, be in the world trying to sell our work like behind a table at a concert and be like, Oh, we have this all backwards. Like everything mm-hmm. should be about the price. And then, and then everything, we just sort of built everything backwards from this $20 idea mm-hmm. and, and things are still $20. Like, yeah. On yeah I'm a proud owner of your pigeon oh, yeah. screen print for $20 and <laughs> I love it. And Tim loves it. And we look at it and it makes us very happy for $20. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. And that's the thing is it only has to make you $20 happy. Yeah, like, I know. I don't, it doesn't it's matter what happens. It's far it too. Oh, no, but you know what I mean though is it's just like, I guess I like the idea that people have sent me photos of like their niece's bedroom and it has like posters of like whatever – musician or like disney channel starlet or yeah, something and then like next to like one of our prints like that yeah. i i really like that idea or in a, a, a kid's playroom and then like the bottom corner is torn and they hung it real low because they're a kid and like that's just so cute yeah yeah and like yeah, it, yeah the thing is we we just want to make stuff accessible but it also just gives us the freedom and like the weight off of our mind to just make whatever we want to make and feel free because truly you only have to like it $20 amount. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. As, as prolific as you both are, do you ever worry about running out of ideas? Do you have that particular creative anxiety or does it we, feel like yeah. being creative leads to be more creative? I think it's the latter. Although I, I hate that this, the business of everything, whether it's illustration and art direction it leads you to just repeat yourself and self plagiarize all the time. Like p- people will only hire you to, to do what you've already done. Right. It's such a drag, but like sometimes our art prints are like a corrective to that where we're like, boy, I, for this project, I wish we got to do this. And then, so we do that as, but like like, an, art as an art print. Yeah. And then oh, the next nice. time an art director comes around, they, they can ask us to make that instead. Yeah, exactly. But like, yeah, I do think that creativity probably begets more creativity. There was a time where we were very nervous that we were going to run out of ideas or that they were just precious and we needed to like write them mm-hmm. down. We had like a PDF where yeah. we just had all our ideas and it got to like over 300, like different <laughs> print ideas, like 300 print ideas Sometimes it helped us, like, at least in the top 10 print ideas to, like, organize, like, oh, we have a gallery show coming up, so what are 10 that we could, like, do? But, like, they, it got very obscure, where we're mm. like, well, what did we mean by that? Yeah. And, like, sure. But also, it gets down to, like, 300, and you're like, I'm good. I think, 
Yeah. We will always be coming up with ideas for prints. Yeah, I think that honestly, like our the biggest enemy that we have is just time. Right. There's never enough time to do mm-hmm. everything that we want. Like we have so many things that we would love to do. Oh yeah. And we're just limited by time and our old bones. <laughs> well, and just yeah, I mean, this is the the dark side of like everything being twenty dollars and time in terms of just like we are we print oh, boy, we were looking at it and we print every day. Yeah. And we probably print in the on average an edition every day and a half. Mm. So we're just constantly pumping out these prints just to keep the inf- inventory numbers up. Yeah. It's it's wild. It's the other side, but we love a frenzy. Like there's nothing yeah. like going at an art fair and there's a sign and people are like is that for real? Is this $20? And they just ha- I mean Uh, That's what I want. I want like people just like, I want to see that smile. I want to see disbelief. (laughs) Like, but yeah. So, I mean, ideas, no. Well, and the, the, the medium too. Like the medium is a constant idea generator. I mean, I, 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 that is very true. Like, I don't know how I would feel if I didn't print my own work. Mm. I'm very connected to the labor of it. And the material and the material of it. Like it's part of our art practice, obviously like so intrinsic. And so I don't, it, it's a good question. Like if we weren't printing our own work, would we have as many ideas? I don't, I don't think that we would. Or they just wouldn't be the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That like, makes a lot of sense. But yeah, like the print off pile is definitely like a generator of ideas. Like mm-hmm. a lot of our best stuff came from having to print this ink on top of this kind of paper and being like, Hey, wait a minute. Is that a, <laughs> that's a thing? Is that a thing? That's a thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's, that's such an important thing too for, again, students to hear that when you're not in a context where you're being given assignments, you know, too, oh, yeah. that, that or prompts or directives, that through the act of creating, you get the fuel for more creating is, right. totally. is wonderful. Yeah. Well, is there anything on the horizon? particularly fairs you're going to be at or projects coming up, things people should look out for? We won't have any new fairs until Flatstock yeah. in, in March. Yeah, it's South, by South, 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 by South by Southwest. South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. And then like we have another children's book coming out. It's about bulldozers and construction equipment. Yeah. And I mean, we'll just be making prints mm-hmm. in January. Like hopefully we'll be designing new stuff. It really is a drag when you're in the pits of fair season and like every yeah. weekend is every weekend is standing in a booth and saying hello to people. And every weekday is printing three to six colors a day. Yeah. We, yeah. I'm like, I would love to be designing a print right now, but I'm just, we're just not, we're just, yeah. So you caught us where we cannot imagine the future. And <laughs> right. the okay. the horizon, and I think just the light went out of our eyes where it was just like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have a horizon? A future? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only now. Only now. <laughs> Only now exists. Right. And then the, the next second. Who am I failing today? That's my question every day. Oh my gosh. Which, which client is mad at me? How do I like manage their anger? That right is now. my life as a freelance person too, is that whenever <laughs> I'm doing something, it's in sacrifice of something else. Absolutely. 100%. Oh my God. You know, at least in January, we'll only be failing ourselves. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Sh- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where can people find you and follow you and put in orders to stress out your old bones of your beautiful twenty dollars prints? <laughs> so on all social medias, we are at Little Friends of. And then our website is thelittlefriendsofprintmaking.com. But if you Google Little Friends or Little Friends of Printmaking or some combination, I assume you'll you'll We're the only one in the book. Yeah, so far. So far. But yeah, that's where you can find us. Well, thank you both for taking some time to chat. And it's been really fun. Oh, it's been lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I hope I get a chance to visit you in LA. We can go to Venice Beach together. And- <laughs> <laughs> just- we'll go to Muscle Beach. Yeah, yeah. we'll just yeah, like make yeah. tiny little muscles. <laughs> I feel like... 
you two could do a really cute take on Muscle Beach. I'm just going to throw that out there. I bet we can add it to the list. Put it on the PDF. (laughs) Two years from now, we'll be like, Muscle Beach, what what was that? (laughs) (laughs) Was it literally like crustaceans on the beach? You know? If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guests will be Paula Wilson and Tyler Emerson Dorsch. This is a special episode recorded on-site at Paula's exhibition, which was up during Miami Art Week last year. In a Hello Print Friend first, I'll be chatting with both the artist and the curator of this show. We talk about how they met and formed the artist-gallerist relationship, how the move to a rural city in New Mexico changed Paula's practice, the erotic in nature, and the deeply layered historical references in the exhibition, Be Wild, Bewilder. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.